You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Matthew. Here's Nate. Well, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus' battle with the religious leaders of the time continues to escalate. He had closed chapter 11 by telling people to come to him who were laboring and heavy laden and that his yoke was easy and his burden was light, which in one sense was a direct rebuke to the common interpretations of the law at that time. You know, come to me, those of you who have been burdened and heavy laden by the religious leaders and their interpretations of the law and come and be refreshed by me. And now here in chapter 12, we're going to see this debate between Jesus and these religious leaders continue to escalate specifically in the subject of the Sabbath. And this is how it develops in verse 1 of chapter 12. It says, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So you have this whole situation. First of all, they're walking through the grain fields and it happens to be the Sabbath day, the day of the Sabbath rest. And the disciples, who are hungry, uh, begin to pluck heads of grain and to eat them. Now, in their environment, it sounds a little like theft to us, but in their environment and in the nation of Israel, that was a perfectly legal thing to do. You could pluck a few grains as you were walking through a field just to satiate yourself for the moment. You couldn't store it up and bring it home or anything like that. But just as you're walking through, you could pluck a few heads of grain and eat them. The issue was not, you know, that they had plucked some heads of grain. It was that they'd done it on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees were there. They see it. And, you know, this heart of a legalist, they're always watching. And the heart of someone who's under grace is that of the disciples. They felt a freedom in the presence of Christ to eat on the Sabbath. And they said to Jesus, you know, look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. They thought that and had interpreted God's law in such a way that they thought that that what these men were doing was reaping a harvest. They were working by plucking a few heads of grain, which is absolutely ridiculous. By plucking the grain, it was a blessing to them personally to satiate their hunger. They were not working. They were still resting. It would have been less restful for them not to have eaten. And so Jesus responds to them, and I, I love the way that he says it to them, because a couple of times he asks them the question, have you not read? <laughs> and uh, these men were 
very well read in the Old Testament scriptures, of course, had memorized vast amounts of it, but did not understand. They had an incorrect interpretation. And so he says, have you not read? And then he asks them if they've read the story of David when he was fleeing from Saul in the city of Nob. He had gone there and had him elect the priest, had given him some of the holy bread to eat, and it appears like a scandalous moment. And what Jesus does is he uses this story to say, listen, it was unlawful for David to eat that. And it was something that only the priests were allowed to eat, but God was okay with it. Jesus was demonstrating to them that the Sabbath was made for the benefit of man. It wasn't some rule that was designed to hurt people, but to help people. And he looks at this, at that illustration or that story of David going to Ahimelech. And sure, the standard rule was the priests are the only one allowed to eat this food. But in order for David to survive and to live, this anointed man of God, an exception was made. And this ceremonial law of God was not made to suffocate man, but to bless man, to be able to rest. One day out of every week is a great law from God. But they had so twisted it and added on these rules and regulations to it. And then Jesus also talks about the priests in verse 5. You know that he says, the priests in the temple, they profane the Sabbath every Sabbath and are guiltless. In other words, they are working on the Sabbath day. They worked very hard on the Sabbath day, but God held them guiltless. But then in verse 6, Jesus says, I tell you someone or something greater than the temple is here. He's claiming a position of authority over the temple and over the Sabbath. And so he tells him, you know, if you'd have known what God meant when he said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. It's more important to express mercy and all of that than to fulfill some ceremonial religious obligation. But, Jesus says, verse 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The final word here from Christ is simply this. I'm the Lord and have authority over the Sabbath, over God's law. And so this is a claim of deity that Christ is making. And the religious spirit is always among us, within us, around us, desiring to take the things that God has asked of us, the things that God has set out for us, the things that God has even put in place for our blessing. And we seek to earn the favor of God. We seek to make them stringent, restrictive, and difficult when all the while here was God creating this wonderful thing called the Sabbath for the blessing of his people. And of course, Jesus fulfills the Sabbath requirements. And for us, when it comes to our worship, we traditionally worship on Sunday morning, but under and in Christ, every day is the same to us. And we want to honor him with every moment of our lives. And I think what we're looking for now as New Testament believers is a rest that comes from Christ that is not just a Saturday experience, but is a continual experience, a Sabbath heart that is resting in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 9, it says that he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. This is not the temple, but at just a synagogue, a local house of worship. And there was a man there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal 
on the Sabbath. So again, this Sabbath debate is escalating so that they might accuse him. And he said to them, which one of you has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Or how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So they have this big debate. They basically plant this man with a withered hand in front of Christ, knowing that he has the power to heal this man, which is so fascinating. They resist him, but they recognize his power. And they say, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they're trying to trap him. They think that this would be work for him and that he'd be violating God's law as if he could have God's power and violate God's law at the same time. But Jesus responds to them and says, look, how many of you have a sheep? And if one of your sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, are you really going to leave it there in the pit? No, you'll go in and get it out. It's a day of rest, but it's not a day of stupidity. And so Jesus says, it's lawful to do a good thing on the Sabbath. And so he said to the man, verse 13, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. I've often loved and appreciated this story because Jesus looks at this man and says, stretch out your hand. This was an impossible thing for this man to do. He had a withered hand. His hand was unhealthy. He could not stretch out his hand and Jesus had asked him to do an impossible thing. And, and this man could have argued, you know, Lord, I don't have that ability. But instead he stretched out his hand and as he stretched it, his hand was healed. Without Jesus physically touching him, Jesus had healed him with his word. And Jesus will ask us to do impossible things. And as he asks us with and in his request and command is the ability. It's all wrapped up. When he commands us to go, he wraps up within that command an ability to go. Now, Jesus, aware of this, because it says in verse 14 that they conspired against him, how to destroy him. Jesus, verse 15, aware of this, withdrew from there and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Again, that policy that Jesus had of requesting that they would not advertise him in order for him to be able to move about freely and conduct the ministry that he came for, which of course they often ignored. This, verse 17, was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And this is the prophecy, behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. And so this long quotation from the book of Isaiah, and a couple of wonderful things. First of all, verse 18 my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, the Father says of the Son. And if we are in Christ, we have the same pleasure of God upon us. But the reason for the quote, you know, here you have in verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud. The Pharisees 
were seeking to challenge Jesus, but he was not really out to get into that quarrel or argument with them. He just had a mission that he had received from God. And then verse 20, it says that he will not break a bruised reed and a smoldering wick he will not quench. He is just so gentle in the way that he ministers to us. He isn't out to break the spirit of a man, but to lift him up and to restore him. And finally, verse 21, the great promise, in his name the Gentiles will hope. The Gentile world will come to him and know him and receive him. An incredible promise, all the way embedded in those Old Testament scriptures, that the truth would reach into the Gentile world. Now, after this quotation, the conflict escalates further. When it says in verse 22 in our next story that a demon-possessed or oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David, the Messiah that we're waiting for, the king that would sit upon the throne of Israel? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, we've already seen this all the way back in chapter 11, that this was the claim of the religious leaders, that he was able to do these things by the power of the devil. So they give that claim once again, that the Lord of the flies, the devil himself is strengthening this man. He's the prince of demons, uh, which makes no sense. And so Jesus says to them in verse 25, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. I mean, just think about the logic of what you're saying, Jesus says. You know, if, if there's a house and it's divided, how can it stand? Why would Satan cast out Satan. That's why he says in verse 26, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? You know, those Jewish men who were casting out demons by the power of God, were, are they doing it by the power of the devil? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I have the power of God here, then you need to know that the kingdom of God is now here and present. And Jesus, of course, was the key to that kingdom and entering that kingdom. Or verse 29, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. And so Jesus gives an accurate explanation for what has just occurred. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, say he's done this by the power of the devil himself. But Jesus, first of all, debunks that idea and says that would be a divided house. And with all the things that I'm claiming to be able to do and the identity that I'm claiming to have... There is no way that God would allow this kind of power to course through my body. It's by the Spirit of God that I am casting out demons. So the kingdom is truly here and present now. You enter through me. But then Jesus explains how this is 
occurred. And in verse 29, when he says, it talks about the strong man's house and plundering the strong man's goods. And he's explaining how he has cast demons out of these different people, that he has gone in as a man stronger than the strong man in the house. And he has bound the strong man and plundered his goods. He is taking possessions uh, for himself. And so Satan may be strong, but Jesus is the one who disarms principalities and powers, Colossians 2, 14 and 15. And there is power in Christ, which is encouraging for God's children, because it tells us that we do not always have to be in bondage to Satan's tactics. There is always a way of escape provided for us and power in Christ, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And so seeing Satan bound first and then taking the spoils is a great way to do the Christian life. Seeing Jesus work and move and bind the wicked one and gaining the victory. Then Jesus says in verse 30, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. This is a bold statement from Jesus in which he leaves no room for middle ground or passiveness in following him. He's he's saying, listen, you can't play in both worlds. If you're with me, you're not against me. And if you're not with me, then you are against me. And so he says here, whoever does not gather with me scatters. This would be a stern warning to these religious leaders. And then a warning even more severe than that went in verse 31 when he says, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. So Jesus, upon saying these words, has of course, throughout the generation, raised many questions that people want answers to when it comes to what is he saying here about this thing called the blasphemy against the Spirit, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He says, listen, everything will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And if you speak a word even against the Son of Man, you'll be forgiven. But if you speak against the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. Now, Let's keep this in its proper context. You have to think of this particular context of this story. What was happening? You had the religious leaders saying that Jesus had cast out demons by the power of the devil himself. Jesus then explaining, no, I have not cast out demons by the power of the devil. I've cast out demons by the power of the spirit of God. And then you have Jesus immediately after that saying, Watch out. You don't want to be guilty of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Everything will be forgiven except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You could say a bad thing towards the Son of Man and it will be forgiven you. But to speak out against the Holy Spirit, uh, you will not be forgiven either, either in this age or in the age to come. So in its context, it seems like there's a connection. You're speaking out against the Holy Spirit when you observe the work of Jesus and claim that it is not something that has been done by the power of God. 
It does not have divine authenticity or authority attached to it. To call Jesus just a mere teacher or a philosopher or something like that, and to say that the work that he did on the cross was not the work of the Spirit of God in atoning for the sin of the world, to make that kind of claim and say, well, I don't think that Jesus really operated under the power of God and was doing the work of God that he said he was doing. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We are justified by grace through faith. And the faith that we have is the confession with our mouth and the belief in our heart that Christ has paid the penalty for our sin and has risen from the grave. And so I think that on the cross, he paid the penalty and paid the price for all of mankind. But now mankind is left to receive that gift and to believe that what he accomplished on that cross was effective. And to say that it was not of God is to blaspheme the spirit of God who was working through Christ. Jesus goes on and says in verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And so Jesus speaks to them about the fruit that comes from their lives. And these Pharisees were demonstrating the root that was in them, that it was a root of unbelief and bitterness. And when confronted with Christ, that root was revealed. The fruit that came out of them was evil and it was bad fruit. That's why Jesus says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? Out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. It's just what's going on inside of you that is being revealed. The fruit reveals the root of a man. And Jesus knew that their heart needed to be dealt with. Now verse 38, it says, Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Now, for us, it sounds like a hilarious thing that they're saying. Here's Jesus going all around Israel, all around the region of the Galilee, preaching and teaching to be sure, but casting out demons and even raising the dead and healing the sick and dealing with leprosy and blindness and those that were lame. And they come to him and say, we want to see a sign from you. It sounds ridiculous to us. In one sense, it really is. But they had grown up and believed that when the Messiah came, he would do some marvelous kind of sign, call down fire from heaven or some such thing, and so reveal and demonstrate that he was the uh, Messiah. And so Jesus answered them in verse 39. He said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The one sign that Jesus would give to them 
And he alludes to it with this sign of the prophet Jonah, the three-day and three-night burial, so to speak, in the heart of the great fish, the belly of the fish, and the heart of the earth. That sign that Jesus was giving to them, partly the cross itself, but the resurrection, that he would die, that he would be buried, and that he would rise from the grave. And Jesus, in one sense, was choosing to hinge everything upon the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, Without the resurrection, we are, of all people, the most pitiable. And the early church preached the cross along with the resurrection of Jesus itself. We've got to know the truth, receive the truth of the resurrection. And if you haven't yet read a solid Christian apologetic on the resurrection, the validity of the resurrection account, I'd urge you to do so, to solidify your faith. It was the one sign that Jesus gave to these religious leaders. He says, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, another illustration, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And so Jesus lets them know that, hey, listen, in Nineveh and the queen of Sheba, neither of them had much light, much revelation from God. But the little that they did receive, they used. They repented, they received, and they would rise up in judgment against this generation who had received great light. The light of the world had come to them, and they still rejected him. Then in verse 43, Jesus says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. And as a master teacher, Jesus uses the illustration at hand of demonic oppression and possession. And he says, listen, someone who's been possessed or oppressed, and then the demons leave and come back with more demons to oppress them their last state is worse than the first and jesus uses that illustration to show them and so will your last and final state be worse if you continue to reject and while he was still speaking to the people verse 46 behold his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him but he replied to the man who told him and said who is my mother and who are my brothers and stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so the closeness that we have with Christ, co-heirs with Christ, we are friends, we are brothers, sisters with him. And what were they doing to do the will of God? He said, whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What were they doing? They were sitting and listening to the teaching of Jesus, just in fellowship with him, abiding in and with him. And may you abide well 
with Christ our Lord. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.